Welcome to Stand Forever, the podcast based on the truth that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Stand Forever originated from the First Baptist Church in Kearney, Missouri, just outside of Kansas City. Our teacher is Ken Parker, the church's senior pastor. There's no question the Apostle Paul was a force to be reckoned with. People inside the church recognize he was a key figure in the life of the early church, and what he said, he said with authority from God. Those outside the church wrongly attach negative labels to him because they don't understand biblical inspiration. We'll be learning from the Apostle Paul through his first letter to the Corinthians. The title of the series is Called to be Saints Together which is what Paul reminds the Corinthian church they were to be. Now for today's teaching, here's Ken. When I was a young man, my first vocational role in the local church was in music and worship leadership, and then I worked with students or youth ministry as well. Back in those days, I would be invited to some different places to sing, and for the most part, I took all the invitations that were offered. I was grateful for the opportunity to utilize whatever gift I might have had to try to encourage the people of God. But when you're a young man in ministry, if you have any life at all, there always seems to be an element within the church universal that decides you need to become a charismatic. They're not content with you wearing whatever denominational label you might wear. It's as if people didn't think back then that Baptist churches deserved a worship leader with a pulse. So a lot of places I would go, I would find myself afterward being cornered by people, well-meaning people, I'm sure, who thought I needed them to pray for me so that I would, in their words, receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and then begin speaking in tongues. I could tell you some stories, but I'm just going to tell you one related to that this morning. I was invited to sing at a church where a relative of mine was attending. It was a newer charismatic church near my hometown. I was serving a church already part-time during those days, and so I went to this charismatic church to sing. I asked the pastor how many songs that he wanted me to sing. He was very kind. He said, sing a few, whatever the Spirit leads you to do, or something like that. So I got to church early, did a brief sound check, and waited. Pretty soon people started coming into worship. We started worship late, which made me break out in hives, by the way. But as they told me, they weren't worried about the clock because they were on Holy Ghost time. When it was my turn to sing, someone introduced me that I was the relative of so-and-so. They all clapped. They were very gracious as I sang. I did two or three songs. At some point during one of the songs, which was a very mellow and moving song, a few ladies made their way to the front of the worship area and were met by a man who was seated there in the front row. And then as if on cue, he touched them on their foreheads and they all fell down right there in front of me while I was singing. And then, as if on cue, because it was, someone else came along with some silk blankets and laid the blankets over the ladies' legs up to their waist, which evidently made everyone feel more comfortable in the midst of my singing, but most especially me. So this was a bit different than the church I was serving. And I sang my songs, and I made my way back to my seat. My mom and my dad were there, and we sat about three-fourths of the way in the back. We wanted to make sure they knew we were Baptists, after all. 
And the pastor preached, and he was a nice young man. I don't remember what he preached, but he was sincere and demonstrated that he had studied. In the midst of the singing, after the pastor preached, I thought we were going to have the preaching and then maybe one song, and then we're out. Oh no, we're on Holy Ghost time. So then we started singing again, and then people started speaking in tongues all over the worship center. They began speaking in tongues. I don't recall exactly how it transitioned, but at some point the music stopped, and the person who was speaking in tongues the loudest kept speaking, and everybody else got quiet. And then the assistant pastor said, does anyone have an interpretation? And finally, someone else stood up and said, yes, I do. The Lord told me that He wants to do a work in the church through prayer. Well, alrighty then. You knew that, right? Even at the ripe old age of 20, I knew that already. God didn't have to go to all the trouble of having someone speak in tongues to get that word out. I had read enough of the Bible at that point to know that God wanted to do a work in the church through prayer. So far, so good. I thought it would be time to go after all that, but not so fast. We're on Holy Ghost time. Then another man got up and said how much they appreciated me singing that night. He was very kind and gracious. And then it's almost as if he took on a different persona, sort of like the serious preacher look, but he wasn't the pastor. And he looked at me, and he pointed his finger at me, and he said, you, come here. I have a word from God for you. Never been so scared in all my life. <laughs> I mean, except the day of my wedding, but that's a different story. <laughs> anyway, I looked at the man, and, and I, I mean no disrespect, but I looked at him and I gestured, gestured kind of like, I'm good, man. No thanks. And then he looked at me again, and I looked at him again and said, I'm good. I, I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you guys, and this is one man's opinion about all of that. The speaking in tongues portion of the worship left me wanting it, it didn't seem to do what Scripture would indicate that it might do in those days. And frankly, because the interpretation was so weak, I didn't believe it was for real anyway, just my opinion. I'm not questioning their motives, but the whole thing simply didn't ring true for me. Plus, I knew in the back of my mind that if I started speaking in tongues, I'd lose my job and I had college debt to pay. That was a different time, remember? Well, the 8.30 people did better than you guys. <laughs> so that's one example of experience that I've had with the sign gifts. We're going to look at them again this morning, as well as in the weeks to come. So let's do that. Call to be saints together. We continue 1 Corinthians 14, and we're going to begin reading with verse 6. I'll invite you to stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 6, as we continue our verse-by-verse -verse study through 1 Corinthians. Paul writes, Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct tones, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. Thank you. You may be seated. 
last time we were together, I spent a good bit of time explaining some things about the gift of tongues, and I'm not going to take all the time to do that again. If, if you were out last week, it might do you well, it might be worth your while to take a look at the sermon or listen to the sermon from last week in case that's something about which you're wondering. And if you have trouble sleeping, I promise the sermon will be most helpful. Four things this morning quickly. Number one, speaking in tongues doesn't necessarily benefit the whole church. Speaking in tongues doesn't necessarily benefit the whole church. We recognize this from what we read beginning with verse 6. In fact, let's go back and look with me at verse 10. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know what the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and if the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Speaking in tongues doesn't necessarily benefit the whole church. Paul says at the outset, even if he speaks in tongues, if he doesn't bring the church a word of knowledge or prophecy or teaching, it won't benefit the believers. If you're talking before the whole church and your speech is unintelligible, who will know what you're striving to communicate? Paul asks that very question in verse 9, and the implied answer is no one. In fact, he says that you are speaking into the air. We might say in our vernacular, or you're spitting into the wind, it's useless to the point, quite simply, speaking in tongues doesn't necessarily benefit the whole church. And Paul, as well as others throughout history, would remind us that of primary importance to connected, that is connected to our deportment and practice, it's how we do what we do to benefit the people of God, the whole church, if you will. The experience that believers at Pentecost had, as recorded in Acts 2, and the experience of believers in Samaria, as recorded in Acts chapter 8, oftentimes these are highlighted in an attempt to make speaking in tongues synonymous with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. These texts, by the way, are also misused by those wanting to show there's a two-stage sort of Christian experience. That is, they would say, stage one is faith in Jesus, and later at some other point, one receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they would also typically say that speaking in tongues is necessary to demonstrate you've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is a demonstration that you belong to Jesus. First, let me remind you, there are people in heaven at this very moment, and there will be people in heaven throughout all of eternity that never spoke in tongues. We must remember that these early believers were living in an era of transition. The transition was occurring for God's people between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. This time, as recorded in the book of Acts, was a time that demonstrated how the Holy Spirit was working. And He was working in ways that seemed new to the believers, but that doesn't mean that what happened as recorded in Acts 2 or Acts 8 is what would become normative for all believers for all time. The inherent problem with tying these experiences to that which is normal is that the Scripture clarifies that the Holy Spirit now belongs to all believers. So to say the Holy Spirit now baptizes some Christians and not other Christians is to tear at the very fabric of the totality of the New Testament document itself. Everybody pay close attention for a moment. If even as Baptists, we believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we Baptists believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
Sometimes your friends will say, you guys don't believe in the baptism of the Spirit. We do. It's just that we see it as occurring at the point at which we are saved. In that moment, in that moment when we repent of sin and surrender to Christ, we believe we are baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ. Now pay attention to this one verse, Romans 8, verse 9, part B. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So when your Pentecostal or charismatic friends, well-meaning though they may be, tell you that you have to be saved and then later have an experience of being baptized by the Holy Spirit, and then maybe you need to speak in tongues as a demonstration of all that, then you need to repeat this verse back to them. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, listen carefully, this is vitally important. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. You're not saved. You've not been born again. You're not regenerate. You're not a part of the family of God. So speaking in tongues doesn't necessarily benefit the whole church. Secondly, speaking in tongues has purpose, but speaking in a language people understand has more. Look with me, please, at verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Imagine the scene at Corinth, and in fact it's obvious based on what Paul says in the letter, the Corinthian believers had at times an emotional and very enthusiastic atmosphere. Nothing wrong with enthusiasm, and the truth is we are emotional beings, but the truth is we don't have to have a lot of craziness in order to honor the Lord. Bear in mind, many of them had come from these mystery religions, paganism that we spoke about in earlier weeks, and no doubt the influence of that paganism and all of the craziness that went along with that was still hanging heavy in the air at the church at Corinth. Likely due to that, Corinthian believers on the continuum between thinking deeply and feeling deeply would have a tendency to gravitate toward the feeling deeply. As some scholars will note, they would likely downplay the importance of the mind and value more highly some of the experiences that they would have. And Paul, likely for that very reason, is going to stress manifestations of the Spirit which do not, do not bypass the processes of the mind. In fact, Paul stresses the concept of exercising their minds through the Spirit to the fullest. He mentions five areas living as a believer where this needs to be done in prayer, in singing, in thanksgiving, in instruction, and in thinking. In all of these areas, we ought to be utilizing our mind, even as Paul encouraged the Corinthian believers to do. As David Pryor notes, the Christian who does not allow the Spirit to stretch and renew his mind in these five ways is resisting the work of God 
in sanctification. Let's be clear. Paul's not downplaying speaking in tongues. In fact, he says he does it more than everybody else. But he wants to be sure those who are gathered with the church have the opportunity to hear the truth in their language that they might understand the gospel above all and not be distracted by tongues they don't understand in the first place. Paul makes it clear. Speaking five words with his mind to instruct the church is far more beneficial than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. So again, while we don't want to part company with those who purport to practice these sign gifts, neither do we want to give these gifts so much attention, so much attention, that they in fact downplay the greatest gift ever given, that of Jesus Himself. So speaking in tongues doesn't necessarily benefit the whole church. Speaking in tongues has purpose, but speaking in a language people understand has more. Number three, maturity related to exercising spiritual gifts is vital to church health. Verse 20, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Paul is going to end up telling them not to speak in tongues without someone interpreting. The reason he says this is because without someone interpreting, it's a demonstration of really not caring well for other people. It would be childish. He would say they're acting like children, that they would be more concerned about themselves than others. He notes this in the 20th verse. He did not want them to be immature in their thinking. Let me remind you, there are countless places where the Scripture says the same. We have to recognize that what we say and what we do and even what we think will impact and affect people both inside of the church as well as those outside of the church. In other words, we need to be growing in maturity, recognizing part of what we need to do is be helpful to others and not be so concerned about ourselves. But you know how it works when you're immature. You know how it works with little kids. They see a piece of candy, and what do they say? Mine! Mine! And I say, no, son, you can't have that donut. A little child expects the world to revolve around them. Look at me. Look at me. Look at what I can do, Daddy. Look at what I can say. Look at me. Look at me. And Paul says, don't be like that. Our needs are not more important than others. Respond accordingly. What we think isn't more important than what others think. Respond accordingly. James says something along those lines about what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you. Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. In other words, you don't get your way. That's immaturity, James says. James understood it. Paul certainly understood it. Speaking in tongues doesn't necessarily benefit the whole church. It has purpose, but speaking in a language people understand has more maturity related to exercising spiritual gifts is vital to church health. And finally, our practice as the people of God should demonstrate we're considerate of those who are not yet part of the people of God. Verse 21 and following. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign, get this, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? 
But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Paul, in this text, alludes to Isaiah 28.11. There it's recorded how God's word of judgment against Israel is spoken in an unintelligible language by the Assyrians who were invading them. And Paul then ties that to tongues and says, they're a sign not for believers in that moment, but rather for unbelievers. So the next time some of your friends seek to impress you as a believer with their gift of tongues, remind them of this reality. Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers in this context. But prophecy is a different story. Unbelievers are convicted and convinced by prophecy. We'll talk more about that next time. The problem seems to be far too often that believers put the focus on places it doesn't need to be. Paul says that prophecy trumps tongues, and yet countless churches are enamored. They are enamored with the concept of speaking in tongues to the detriment of speaking the truth in love in a language people can understand. Remember the church I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, the one where people were speaking in tongues and they were falling down at the floor, falling down at the front on the floor. And there was one lady, I didn't mention this, but she ran all the way around the exterior of the worship center holding a handkerchief. And I'm not sure what she was saying, but she was running. That was a little distracting. Hard to remember the words when you're trying to sing. I'm sure they were good people. But I also know that there were some people there who thought, by their own admission, that the little church I was serving at the time was missing out because we didn't speak in tongues. Our focus in that church, as imperfect as we were, centered on the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus and the whole counsel of God's Word. Here's what I'll tell you. The church that focused on the sign gifts is gone. They have long since closed their doors. But the little church I was serving that focused on preaching the Word is gathered together at this very moment doing the very same thing they've been doing for some 80 years. You've been listening to Stand Forever with Ken Parker. Thank you for taking the time to join us. If you'd like to correspond with us, feel free to email from the contact information found on our church website, www.carneyfbc.com, or write to us at Stand Forever, 303 South Grove Street, Kearney, Missouri, 64060.